0: In this episode of the KoineGreek.com podcast, we look at some common objections to using the communicative or living language approach when teaching Koine Greek. So there's a lot of discussion today in the world of, of teaching Koine Greek, of teaching biblical Greek around how to teach the language and the benefits of it and the negatives of, of different methods. And for some, maybe they don't even know that there's more than one method. You know, you simply come to your first textbook in seminary and you learn from that textbook and you think this is just how we learn Koine Greek or maybe even in uh, a student in classics learning classical Greek and might not even be aware that there's more than one method for teaching Greek. And so To start out this podcast, I thought I would just give a brief overview of two of the main methods for teaching Koine Greek or even Classical Greek that are out there today. So you'll hear a lot of discussion between proponents of what's called the grammar translation or traditional approach, and then proponents of what's called the communicative approach or the living language approach. Now, the grammar translation or traditional approach is what's what's most common when teaching Koine Greek or Ancient Greek. And that, to put it simply, is basically the idea that if you teach the rules of grammar and you teach vocabulary and you put those together and you apply those to a text and you're asked to translate that text, that's basically, um, over time, how you're going to learn Greek. So if you learn this is the noun logos, word, and you learn it has five cases, right? Logos, logu, logo, logon, and then evocative, you would loge. Five cases. And then you start seeing that word in sentences, and you learn the rules of when you use each case, and you just work through. You start with simple sentences, you know, logos estin galos, right? The word is good. And then you learn a rule that when uh, a noun is the object that works like logos, then instead of ending in os, it ends in on, so you say, you know, uh ton logon, you know, I write I'm writing the word. Um and so you you start to uh learn rules, the vocabulary, and you apply them to uh Greek sentences and you translate them, and over time you learn to do that in larger and larger swaths of text and with more and more complex grammar rules and vocabulary, and slowly, slowly you're able to learn The whole language that way. And that has been traditionally the way Koine Greek and Classical Greek is taught in many institutions, and it's still by far the most widespread form of of Greek teaching. Now, that doesn't mean when you teach that way that you don't do any exercises or learning that remains totally in Greek. It's not all translation, of course. You can have fill-in-the-blank, you can have all sorts of different things you can do, but the basic sort of core of that type of a curriculum is is geared around learning the grammar rules, the vocabulary, and applying it to texts, with the ultimate goal being translation. So that's the the grammar translation approach, uh, sometimes referred to in short as the GT approach. Now, the communicative approach, or the living language approach, it can also be uh, referred to as CLT for short, the communicative language teaching approach, is not geared towards translation, and in fact doesn't even, in many cases, include translation at all in the entire curriculum. The idea behind the communicative approach is that you will best learn language by using it in real context where you have to communicate with others, right? So, whereas in a GT class you might come to class and have to translate a text and discuss the grammar of it, in a communicative class you might come to class and have to speak with your partner about your family and where they're from and what they do for work and where they live. And you ask them questions about their family. And so the class prepares you to talk about yourselves, to talk about other people, to meet people, to interact in different situations, and to have different sorts of conversations all in the language you're learning, namely in this case Koine Greek. And so you're The idea is not that you're ultimately translating text. The idea is that you're using the language for real communication. You're using it as a living language, and the whole class, or 90-plus percent of the class, is taught in Koine Greek, so that you always remain in the language. So these are kind of the two main approaches that are out there. Of course, there's hybrids in between these, and there's other approaches which might not quite fit into either of these categories, but that's basically what you're dealing with. Uh, the GT, grammar translation approach, where you have grammar plus vocab, apply it to a text, leads to translation. And then you have the communicative or living language approach, which is all about interaction in the language. And you learn the language by learning what you need to communicate uh, and interact with, with others in the language. Now, the as my listeners will know, KoineGreek.com is all about treating Koine Greek as a living language, right? The slogan of the website is Koine Greek is not a dead language. So you can tell already where I'm going with this, that I subscribe to the communicative approach as being the preferable option, if you are able to choose. But not everyone agrees with that, which is fine, right? There's no infallible approach. And there are pros and cons to both GT and the communicative approach. But being a being an advocate of the communicative approach, I thought I would defend it against some of the common objections that get raised against it. And it actually, there are real legitimate objections to be taken into account, and I think that's why it's important to to discuss them. And it, in fact, is one of the most common things you hear when you talk about, oh, you teach Koine Greek as a living language, or, oh, you you speak Koine Greek. Yeah, but what about this? What about that? So I I thought it would be worth my time to to sort of answer some of these objections and Help explain why it's still worth doing. So let's start with one of the most common objections, and that's, in more or less words, we are going to make mistakes. Now, first of all, that objection is true, right? We will make mistakes. We're trying to speak Koine Greek. As a living language, there are no native speakers of Koine Greek, though it is on a continuum that leads to the Greek of today. But there are no native speakers of Koine Greek. And that's a real problem, right? Because authentic language material can only be produced by a native speaker, right? We can look at ancient texts that we have, but we can't produce anything new that will be from the mind or from the mouth of a native speaker. We we have to rely on what's there, and that's limited, right? There's a limited attestation of what's there. It's all text. And we just don't have. Ev- we don't have the resources for coin a Greek that we do for a modern language because we can't ask any native speakers, and so we're going to make mistakes. And the, the concern is: Are we going to then pass mistakes on to our students, so that we actually ingrain in them through our mistakes teaching things that aren't actually part of the language? Now that. Real that really is a legitimate objection. There's there's truth to that, and and I think even even especially the even if we have all the vocab we need and all the grammar we need, the objection can even be made a bit more nuanced. And that's saying like, okay, maybe it's not as simple as we don't know how they said cat or we don't know how they said watermelon or something like that, but it can be something even more nuanced. Regarding pragmatics, right? And anyone who's learned a language knows that sometimes, even if you have all the vocab and all the grammar, that doesn't always translate to what you need. So, for example, if you are thinking, okay, how do I say, how are you to somebody? I mean, this is a perfect example across different languages. And you said, okay, well, I'm just going to translate the words, how are you, right? If you did that in um, in ancient Greek, and you said, posi, how are you, they would probably look at you funny, right? Even though in modern Greek you can say posise, right? But in ancient Greek and Koine Greek, it didn't work that way. You say possehis, right? Possehis, right? How do you have or how do you hold or how are you disposed? However you want to translate that. And so it's just a good example. That one we have attested tested enough so we can see it very clearly, but we don't always know, right? And so it's not just enough to translate it's not just enough to translate what we think they would have said. If we don't know exactly what they would have said in a certain situation, we're liable to just translate thoughts from our own language and and get it wrong. And we can test it in some cases, but in other cases we might not know that we're doing this. And so that's a real danger we have to be aware of that we can make mistakes and not even know we're being uh we're being inauthentic in our, in our speech. Okay, so that's that's the more nuanced form of it, that even if we have all the vocab and the grammar, we might not replicate ancient pragmatics as we should. Okay, so how do we how do we answer this objection? Well, first, we admit that it's a legitimate objection, and it's true, right? We will make mistakes, and we will make mistakes in pragmatics that we don't even know about. So we admit that at the start. However, the alternative, right, it's kind of like this is probably one of those quotes that floats around, but didn't Winston Churchill say something like democracy is the worst form of government except for all the other ones. I don't know if it was Churchill. Uh, It's been said by somebody. And I think this is one of those situations, right? The communicative approach is the worst approach for dealing with ancient languages, except for all the other ones. And what I mean by that is all of these mistakes that we might be making in Koine Greek and passing on to our students are in our heads anyways, and they're in our students' heads or going to be in their heads as soon as they have enough time with Koine Greek to import their own language background anyways. And what do I mean by that? If you ask a seasoned scholar of Koine Greek who's been teaching and researching for decades to start composing texts in Koine Greek, and maybe it's something they've done before, maybe it's not, they're, even they will make some of these sorts of mistakes of importing foreign concepts into Koine Greek. Why? Because none of us are native speakers and even the best scholar, if they have to write long texts, are going to have this happen to them. Even if they're very careful in their research never to assume anything and to always base their arguments off of attested examples, if you say, just sit down and write some text, no dictionary, no consulting tools, you just have to write, they're gonna make some of these mistakes. Now, in those situations, The moment they sit down before they write, they haven't made any of those mistakes yet on paper. But is it the fact that they now are asked to write which makes them start thinking about Greek in a way that leads to mistakes? No, of course not. All the writing is doing is revealing what's already in their head, right? The same thing will happen to all of us if I sit down and write, you know, I'll make mistakes like that. And it's just revealing what's already in my head. So it's not that by doing something like composition I I should be careful about the term composition. Sometimes people mean composition to mean reverse translation. When I say composition, I just mean people writing things, actually creatively producing something in Koine Greek. It's not the process of composition that leads to mistakes. It's actually the process of composition that reveals mistakes, right? So that seasoned scholar, before they sit down, nobody sees that they are thinking about, I don't know what relative clauses in Greek incorrectly whereas as soon as they write and they say oh wait we compare what you wrote to ancient greek text look you're making mistakes here they don't do relative clauses that way you know who knows what it is and so it's actually the act of producing something that reveals inauthentic understanding of koine greek and that is is actually a gift right because when you're doing that it's one thing with writing you write you can very objectively compare when you're speaking You know, you have to be around people who know really well what's going on to point out mistakes quickly. Writing, it's easier. But in a community, it happens over time too. If you're speaking Koine Greek in your family or with students or with other scholars or teachers, you'll have discussions about, wait, is that really how we should say that? You said that, but I said it this way. What's the best way? Um, Let's think about it. And then you see something in a text and you say, oh, they say it that way. So I should actually fix that. And what I've found is that making mistakes is actually why speaking Koine Greek and why using the communicative method is is such a gift because it will actually reveal where you're thinking about Koine Greek incorrectly and allow you either independently or in the community of Koine Greek speakers to self-correct and gradually bring yourself to a more and more authentic understanding. So, it's actually much better because if you're using grammar translation approach, many of those foreign understandings of Koine Greek and and incorrect views of the language just stay in your head and they never get revealed. Whereas when you're speaking it constantly, when you're writing it constantly, you are more prone to see your mistakes. And I'll give a perfect example. Um we did this uh Koine Greek speaking group in Cambridge called Kyunean Kandavriya, right? Koine in Cambridge. And in one of the first episodes, I was asking people what their name was, and we were talking about the name, names of little figurines on the table. And right, the question formulaically that I'd learned is, you know, ti si onoma, what is your name? You notice "t" question word, si, the dative pronoun, and then onoma, indefinite. Now, um, then when I started, and it's a bit unusual for English speakers because it's dative, right? Instead of genitive, we would think it would be, you know, what is the name of you, your name, rather than what is the name to you, which is more literally translating the dative if you had to. Um, and but then when I started asking questions about other, instead of just saying "ti si onoma what's your name? Asking questions about the names of the things on the table, I was saying things like "tiestin to onoma to andri." Right. And then I started using the article. What is the name to the man? And it sounded fine to me. I was just trying to translate the rule uh, to a different context, or translate the phrase to a different context, uh, transfer it, rather. And after I posted this, um, Will Ross, who's a great Greek scholar, I really, really uh, appreciate appreciate him, he posted on on the in the comments and he said, look at this article. When you are talking about names, it's genitive if it's to onoma and it's dative if it's just onoma, right? This is a John Lee article. And so I looked at the article and I was like, wow, sure enough, he's right. So I should be saying, you know, onoma afto yoannes, right? His name is John, but here with the dative and because it's indefinite, onoma afto yoannes, but if I'm making it definite, I should say, to onoma aftu right? And I've now been corrected, and I'm able to implement that correction into my speech, and now I have it with me going forward, and I've just made my Greek that much more authentic. And now how did that happen? That happened because I was speaking it, and I was making mistakes, and I had my mistakes revealed so that I could correct them, and then re-internalize something that that is just that much more authentic. Now, that would never have happened if I wasn't speaking Greek, right? And that sort of thing happens all the time. But if you don't constantly produce things, you're not going to see that. You're not going to be able to be corrected, and it's just going to stay in your head. And then when you read in a text, you know, unless you come across that article on your own, of course you can, right? But the more you make mistakes in a community, the more chance you have to be corrected. So I think it's actually quite a gift. Um, and then the other response to this objection of we'll make mistakes is simply we just need to be careful in our pedagogy, right? If we're teaching a beginning class, we try to stay as close to authentic material as possible. And for me, in the Koine Greek curriculum I'm developing with the Biblical Language Center and Scott McQuinn there, the entire first semester, first half of the first year, is based on the ancient Greco Roman conversation manuals known as the Hermenebmata, Theana. Um, also called, you know, the colloquia of the Hermenemmatapsevdodosithiana. Really catchy name, I know. And and they basically were handbooks, guidebooks for how Greek speakers can learn Latin and Latin speakers can learn Greek in the Greco-Roman world. And I have just all these great basic conversational phrases in different realms of life, having a dinner party, having a court case, buying something in the market, all sorts of stuff like that. So we designed a curriculum you know, replicating a lot of that. And so it really is based on you know, authentic material in these uh, different language contexts. So you you do pedagogical strategies that also try to keep you as authentic as possible in in a controlled context. Okay, so that's one objection. Now, another one that gets brought up, and I'll just read this one. This is from Andrew on Twitter. He says, One argument I hear a lot is that grammar translation is that doing the actual work of a scholar and prepares students for graduate and doctoral work directly. Living language means one is spending tons of time learning things that doesn't have a direct analog to grad work. And alternatively, grammar translation gets students with no knowledge into working with New Testament directly much sooner than living Greek. Okay, so this this is really the academic side of things, right? That one of the main goals when learning Koine Greek in seminary or graduate school is that Students would be trained so that they can actually deal with linguistic research, ex- uh, articles in exegesis, peer-reviewed journals, and be able to produce this sort of material themselves. And if that is a goal, then yes, you absolutely have to give plenty of time to dealing with the meta-language, language of grammar, linguistic analysis, all of that. And that isn't going to come as directly through a living language communicative approach. Right? You can teach people to talk about texts and analyze them in Koine Greek, But that's not going to transfer over necessarily into writing and reading articles about Koine Greek. And I would just say that this is where we have to come back to the question of what are our ultimate goals, right? When we're learning, and this is maybe why it differs whether or not you're teaching Koine Greek to to an undergraduate class where it might just be fulfilling their language requirement or to a graduate student who actually is going to be needing to deal with commentaries and publishing themselves. But I think we really should be realistic about what our goals are do we want someone to be able to describe Greek grammatically and linguistically in a journal article or understand what's written in a journal article? Or do we want somebody to be able to sit down with the New Testament in Greek in front of them, read it, and get it, and have it hit them the way their native language hits them without needing to translate or hear it hear it preached or hear it on an audio recording and have it hit them in their heart the way their native English or other language does? without needing to translate. Because those are two different goals. And whatever you give more time to, you're going to develop a greater proficiency in whatever those things are, whether it's you can analyze the text linguistically, you know the grammatical categories, you're able to understand the research on the language, but maybe you come to the text and it doesn't hit you immediately because you have to sit down, you have to translate, you have to do all those things. Whereas somebody doing a communicative approach might not be able to deal with all the linguistic terminology, but they read the text and it hits them and they get it without needing to translate. Now, the both of those approaches will eventually come to a place where they can do both of those things in a way, right? So there's people who can go so far with grammar translation that they can read a text and it hits them very quickly. They're just that familiar with it. These are really, you know, um, seasoned scholars are quite brilliant people. In, in my opinion, I think it's very hard for everyone to do that with the grammar translation approach. And then on the other hand, people who do the communicative approach, eventually they get, if you get so advanced, you've been doing it for years and years, then it's not so hard to jump over and get a bit of linguistic training and then have all of your language sort of um, come to make more sense in the linguistic system, just like a native speaker of English who then starts taking linguistics in in university would would have a similar experience. So I think this really gets to our goals. What are our goals? Is it training someone in linguistics for research purposes, or is it just trying to get them to understand the language so they can read it and appreciate it? And there might even be a difference in in terms of context here. Now, there's another objection that's kind of connected to this one. And that's, uh, so Eric mentions this one on Twitter. He says, in the context of an established program, it can be a real challenge to fit living language approaches with established grammar translation texts for the courses. If we're talking seminary MDiv, the curriculum is already very crowded, little time, and there are large prior commitments. Now, this is kind of, touching on the idea of someone who likes the communicative approach. They want to implement it in their institution, but they have a wider curriculum that it has to fit in, which uses a certain grammar translation or traditional textbook for the courses and other classes they have to coordinate with and certain curriculum goals. And so it's basically saying, okay, I agree with you. I want the goals for my students, the goal for my students to be what you said about just having, sitting down and reading the text and having it hit them. But in my context, I know they also have to, be able to deal with this linguistic terminology and the sort of language and meta-language you'll get in exegetical articles and all of that. So what do I do? And, And I actually like this question because this is probably the situation for many people. I mean, I've been in this situation where I had to teach biblical Hebrew in a certain curriculum context from a certain book, but I also wanted to give my students the communicative approach. And I think what can actually come out of this is a pretty cool hybrid, right? Because... A lot of us share these goals. We say, well, I don't want to just limit myself to being able to read the text and have it hit me in my heart. I want that. But I also want to be able to deal with the commentaries and scholarly articles on the language and linguistics. I want all of it. And so the answer to this is, is you develop a cool hybrid, right? You find a way to tailor your curriculum to a certain textbook. And so you cover the grammar that's in the textbook, but you make a point to do it in a communicative way, right? So for example, if you are dealing with the Greek uh present tense, you know, you're at a beginning stage, you know, grafo graphis, grafi, graphete And you have to teach that. Well, you just you write a story using all present tense verbs, and you sort of take the students through the story, kind of like you're you know, doing a a play or something like that, where it can be kind of like real time commentary. And You find ways, you find activities that just use the present tense and you say, okay, now we have to move on to the aurist or the imperfect or or whatever it is, the imperative, that's easy. You know, you just um, all day have your students do different actions as you give them imperatives, but you find creative ways to go through the textbook covering the grammar and, and the chapters that they do, but you always use communicative activities to do so and this this will be a bit of a hybrid, right? So you might still have to, if you have a 50 minute class, this might mean you do 30 minutes in Koine Greek and then you stop and you do 15, 20 minutes in English, sort of talking about some of the grammatical terminology and what the students will need to know to follow along with what's going on. And you give names to what you just did, right? So you, you do the activity in Koine Greek and then afterwards you explain to them, okay, now this, when you heard this form, this is called a present tense, or this is called an hour, so this is called an imperative, and then you explain the grammar behind it. And what your students come out of with this approach is actually a, a pretty nice hybrid of having a decent internalized base of the language, but also knowing the grammatical terminology and, and being able to talk about it in that in, in in a more academic context as well. And and I've and I've done this. And I've seen positive results from it. Obviously, my students didn't get quite as far as they would have in either approach, right? If we had only focused on grammar, well, actually, I, I take that back. They didn't get quite as far as they might have if we had only done communicative in terms of their spoken proficiency. But I think that actually, when you do this hybrid approach, it helps them get the grammar and the metal language better because they've internalized the examples So when they're dealing with the metal language and the grammatical language, the linguistic language, they're not attaching it to abstract ideas. They're attaching it to, oh, I remember when he said that to me in class. Oh, that's what we say when we're in this situation. So I actually think the hybrid approach, even if your ultimate goal is the grammatical terminology and being able to uh, read and write research on on Koine Greek, I actually think a hybrid approach is going to be the best for that because it will internalize all the examples and make it just that much more easy for your students to navigate the grammatical language that connects to them. Okay, so the next objection uh, is really just about time, right? And this this comes from actually a, a pretty prominent professor, Peter. He, he says lack of ability on the professor's part, right? With a little double eye emoji, and I like that, right? Because it's it does. Get at something. You know, uh, a friend of mine, uh, Travis Wright, who also teaches Koine Greek, he's with me uh, here in Cambridge. He always talks about that how there are no shortcuts to really learning language. It all takes time. And this is true whether you're learning grammar translation or the communicative approach. But what many find is, you know, people have been brought up on the grammar translation approach. They've been teaching for years and years. They've got a full schedule of teaching courses. And you know, they want to teach this way now. And they think, well, where am I going to get the time? I see somebody, he's been speaking for 10 years and that, you know, he's still growing in his spoken proficiency in Koine Greek. Where am I going to get the time to learn it that way? And this is a legitimate objection because it does take time. But what I would say is for those, I mean, I would give a different answer to people at different stages in their career. For those who have really been teaching a long time and are familiar with Koine Greek, they use it in their daily in uh, their daily research and and are quite familiar with it. They've taught it there. They're at a good place. It actually doesn't take that much to sort of activate somebody in that in that context. You can go from that place of being really familiar with Greek, but only in a grammar translation reading context. Do maybe a eight day Koine Greek immersion intensive, right? We've done some of these things with Biblical Language Center where you come for five, six, seven, eight days and you just do Koine Greek all the time, five hours a day or however long it is. And you go through one of those and you could probably then turn around and teach a first year Koine Greek communicative class. I think there's been professors who have done that if I'm not mistaken. and, And I don't think that's that hard. So you really, if you're a professor who's quite familiar with Koine Greek, been teaching it for years, really you just need to, box out, you know, a couple weeks in the summer to really do one of these intensives. And that can get you at a good place where you can at least start teaching year one. And then, you know, you kind of learn as you go. But it really doesn't take too much more to get started than just a, you know, week or two intensive in in the summer, something like that. And Biblical Language Center does those now and then. Now it's COVID time, so it won't be for a while again, but there there are things like that. Now for somebody who doesn't have as much experience and they still want to get to this place. Yeah, it does take more time. And that's where you need to kind of have a more long-term approach, whether that's taking online courses or meeting, if you can, in person for it, yeah, it does take take time to do this. And and it is a significant change. And there's there's really no way around that. So that is a legitimate objection. Okay, now there's many more things I could I could cover, but the last objection that I'm gonna get at is also my favorite because it actually touches on why I think it's so amazing to learn Koine Greek as a living language. And this comes, I was meeting with a, a prominent New Testament scholar, it was the first time I had met him. And I think in our introduction, it came up that I did biblical Hebrew and Koine Greek as living languages. And I still remember his first response. And this is somebody who I respect immensely in terms of his character and his scholarship. But one of the first things he said was, I just don't think it makes you a better exegete. And you know, I politely received it, and um, can't remember what I said in response, but I, I thought about it afterwards, and I actually wrote a blog post. You can find this uh, on com slash blog. Just search for theology and communicative language teaching. Does learning Greek as a living language impact theology? And so I started to think about this, and I thought, huh, does it make you a better exegete? And then I thought, well, what does it really mean to exegete a text, right? Because... It's a word we typically only use when we're talking about biblical texts, right? I don't go to the newspaper and say, hey, um, um, you know, Professor Smith, how do we exegete this passage in the newspaper? You know, that's not really something that we say. We just say, you know, hey, what is this author getting at? What do they mean when they say this? And of course, that's, that's our goal in exegesis, right? We just want to understand what the author is trying to say, what the author wants us to understand. And the core of exegesis is choice, right? Understanding what choices the author made and understanding what choices the author didn't make and what the meaning of each of those choices are, what the significance of each of those choices are, where there were choices and where there weren't choices, all of those things. And this is maybe a whole nother podcast in itself. But anyway, so after he told me, I just don't think it makes you a better exegete, I started thinking, okay, so what is it really? Doing for us, learning Koine Greek as a living language in terms of exegesis. And I came up with an answer that I think is something that maybe most people wouldn't expect me to say. And that's that I think it changes how we categorize our knowledge and how we think about the categories in the text. And what do I mean by that? Well, I'll share a story of when I first moved to Israel. So for people who don't know my story, I moved to Israel when I was 17 years old. I was 2 weeks away from turning 18, and I did an intensive year of Hebrew and taking classes in sort of dumbed down basic Hebrew, and then the following 3 years I did my undergraduate degree in Israel. And I remember during that process of going from a beginner in Hebrew to being, you know, advanced and taking classes and giving, you know, presentations in Hebrew in the university, that journey that's lasted, you know, several years. I noticed things in, in my language learning, and even since then, as I've learned more and now teach modern Hebrew in, in Cambridge, that your relationship to the language and the categories of how you think about things changes over time. And for example, I, when I would talk about th- uh, theological concepts in my early years in Israel, you know, maybe my first couple years, and I would try to explain, explain things by sort of translating the concept from English into Hebrew. And so I would talk about justification and faith and works, and I would just translate those concepts. And it didn't really seem to hit. I remember talking to people in in a class I was taking at the university and explaining, you know, um, about Christianity that it's it's the justification apart from works. And and I remember it coming out. And I just that doesn't really sound like it's making sense, but I was just translating the terms that I had learned in English, not the terms so much as the categories. And then as I spent more time and actually spent time, um, you know, thinking about how the church in Israel, native Israelis, Messianic Jews speak about these concepts, I realized that their categories are just different, right? Instead of talking about justification which as i was translating it might have just been more you know the idea of you know proving someone right in an argument they they use something more like atonement or covering is and kind of drawing on the biblical terms and you know things like you know repentance are connected more to returning and and things like that and it's just it's um just these different sort of categories and it was actually a bit of a shift in my thinking to to encounter this and say, okay, well, now I actually have to start thinking a bit differently when I'm speaking about these theological categories in Hebrew. And the same thing happens when we're speaking communicative Koine Greek. And I'll, I'll give it a couple examples from, you know, uh, just my life with, with my son, because I speak with my son, when, you know, when I'm not too tired and when I've got the motivation in, in Koine Greek. I did a lot when he was... You know, it's from like his first birthday to his second birthday to really get it into him. And I've tapered off a bit now because it's it's tiring, but um, but when I'm not too tired and I have the motivation, I do it. And one of the things I, I noticed is, you know, you certain concepts that we only see in a theological context suddenly have a real life parallel. For example, if my son and I went down to a little water ditch and we're throwing rocks in the water, trying to get the rocks in the water, and... I missed the water, I can say, you know, emarton idatos right? Now, where do we know emarton um, from? Well, if you're a theological student of Koine Greek, you know it's, you know, amartano, I sin, right? And, but that's also the word you use if you say I missed something, right? So I tried to throw it in the water, but I missed it. Emarton idatos right? And you can also use the amartanin and other things like that, but, um, but it gives you a real-world context, and suddenly that has more of a robust sort of um, foundation for when you come to that word in a theological context. Now, you got to be careful about you know the etymological fallacy and all that stuff. You want to make sure that that's really a way you can use it before you just take something like that and run with it. But you check the text, you're like, oh, yeah, they do use it that way when you're throwing spears and you miss or something like that. It's even used in the Odyssey that way um, on the, the beach scene, if I'm not mistaken. But all that to say, it, it, it changes the categories. And so you start to formulate your questions about the text, not just your answers, but you start to formulate the questions that you have about the text differently. And so you're, you're thinking about things like free will or justification or faith and works and all of that start to change as you discuss them in Koine Greek. And I think that is actually one of the real benefits of communicative Koine Greek learning, is that you're actually going to be trying to replicate the same conversations that the ancients had. And what you'll find is that things that you thought were questions when you're thinking about it in English aren't really that big of questions when you're thinking about it in Greek. Questions that you never even thought of in English actually end up being pretty big questions in the Greek. And let me just give sort of a a basic example. Um, Although there there are much more nuanced examples, I'm sure, but take the word ekklesia, right? Church, you can translate it as, or sort of assembly, you know, whatever the translation is, it doesn't refer to a building. Of course, I'm sure many of you have already heard this, and you don't need to speak Greek communicatively to get this, but it, you know, it refers to the Assembly of the people or the church in the sense of of the people. Now, where it does change things a bit is the fact that if you're speaking Koine Greek on Sunday morning, you can never say, I'm going in the sense of I'm going to the building or look, I see the church as in I see the building. If you do that, that's not a Koine Greek usage, right? You would have to say, Vlepo tenikodomen, ene, shinagate eklesia. Right, you, there's, uh, I see the building in which the church meets. And it's a small example, but it does change the way you think about it, right? If every day, every Sunday you're speaking in Koine Greek and you say, we're going to the building in which the church meets, or where's the church meeting today? you're going to start to think about ecclesia differently than you think about the word church in English, which is so connected to a building. And many people even try to make this distinction in English, which is why it's a good example, because some have experience of how this maybe changes the way they think. But this isn't the only thing. There's there's many things like that in Koine Greek, where as you speak in Koine Greek and you realize you have to replicate ancient, authentic patterns of, of speech and thought about these things, you suddenly start to rethink some of your own English categories, right? And Another good example is, uh, hypocrites, translated commonly as hypocrite. But in the Koine Greek context, in the wider usage, it can also mean actor. Now, again, this is something you can see in a Greek dictionary. You don't need to speak Koine Greek to, to get this. But if you're speaking with your children and say you're watching TV or watching a play and you say, look, there's the hypocrite?" E And they learn, oh, hypocrites that's an hypocrites. And then suddenly you come to the New Testament and you see Jesus calling the Pharisees, hypocrites. Oh, you know, and, and this is something people have pointed out in English, but when you do it in Koine Greek, it changes the way you think about these things and it changes the way these things hit you. So the response to, I just don't think it makes you a better exegete. I think my response is really a question. And that's, Should translation be a part of exegesis? What I mean by that is, is exegesis about translating and grammatically analyzing a text? Or should exegesis be about creating such a world of the language around someone that they experience the text as close as possible to the way that an ancient would have. Now, I know there's a lot more to be said about that, but I'm going to leave it there and maybe send me some questions if you want me to talk more about any of these particular topics. But we'll come back again with another episode in the not-so-distant future.